Hey, it's Elahe. Over the next few weeks, while Martine steps back from the show, you're going to be hearing a rotating crew of wonderful guest hosts. Some will be familiar voices, some will be new ones to you. And I'll be in and out of your ears too, passing off the mic to my colleagues from around the newsroom. This week, my friend and colleague Libby Casey will be guest hosting. She's been thinking deeply about our international coverage, and she's been paying close attention to the escalating violence in the West Bank. She's got an illuminating show about that today, talking to reporter Miriam Berger, who's on the ground. Okay, here's Libby. So you're in the West Bank now to report. What are you finding there? What I'm finding in the West Bank is that everything is falling apart. What we've sort of talked about as being the norm and the status quo in this disputed territories for the last 20, 30 years is really just disintegrating. Miriam Berger covers the Middle East for The Washington Post. She's been reporting inside the occupied West Bank for the past few weeks. This region has a complicated and bloody history. But people have been telling Miriam that this moment feels different. You have growing insecurity. You have growing violence between Israelis and Palestinians. You have the growing emboldenment of Israeli settlers. Um, You have the falling apart of what was only uh, a fragile Palestinian government to start with. You have a real absence of any political process happening. And in the wake, you have a lot of violence and a lot of people taking the situation into their own hands as they see it. Last week, Israeli security forces conducted one of the deadliest raids the region has seen in a long time. In Nablus, a city in the West Bank, at least 10 Palestinians were killed. More than 100 were wounded. Palestinians reacted with grief and fear and anger. Already this year, at least 60 Palestinians, a dozen Israelis, and one Israeli-American have been killed. It marks the worst violence the area has experienced in two decades. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Libby Casey. It's Wednesday, March 1st. Today, we talk with Miriam about how to make sense of this escalation in the Israeli-occupied West Bank and how a shift to the right in Israeli leadership is playing a big part in amplifying the conflict. So, Miriam, who are the people affected by this escalating violence? A lot of the deaths that have happened on the Palestinian side have been Palestinians who are caught in fire during Israeli raids on Palestinian cities and towns. Uh, some of them are fighters, you know, militants that the Israeli government has, that the Israeli military is targeting. Some of them are not the ones that they went into target, but who ended up in firefights and, you know, end up being killed. There's also been cases of, you know, miners being shot, maybe because they threw stones or because of alleged attacks at checkpoints. Um, and these really, you know, scare a lot of Palestinians because there's a feeling that like one wrong move at a checkpoint you know, they could be shot to kill. There's also been some Palestinians who've committed attacks, you know, against Israeli soldiers and uh, civilians and, uh, you know, who've been killed. At least seven people were killed and three others injured outside a Jerusalem synagogue when a Palestinian gunman opened fire. I can tell you that they had left the synagogue after Friday night prayers, the Sabbath prayer. On the Israeli side, you've had several more sort of larger attacks. 
It was the highest death toll for years in the Flashpoint town, which is in the occupied West Bank. So, for instance, you had first this really massive raid in Janine, which is a Palestinian uh, city in the northern West Bank. That was at the end of January. That was, at the time, the biggest, uh, the deadliest raid, single operation that you'd had, uh, again, since the second Intifada period. So 10 Palestinians were killed in that, you know, including an older woman who was just a bystander. You know, that really shook a lot of people because it was also, a, you know, a daytime raid, you know, as opposed to sort of more nighttime incursions. Um, and then right after that, you had a Palestinian who killed seven Israelis um, in a East Jerusalem settlement community right outside their synagogue on Friday, which is a very religious time. So there's these sort of constant cycles. So sometimes, you know, you've had um, individual Palestinians who have been shot. The Israelis say attempting, uh, you know, to stab someone in the old city of Jerusalem or at a checkpoint uh, into a Palestinian community in East Jerusalem. Um, You've had others who, again, have been caught in crossfire. You know, last year was such an incredibly deadly year. This year is already shaping up to be worse. A lot of people, when they hear this story, they just think this is this never-ending cycle of violence. What is so especially bad about it right now, though? So right now, you just have a really combustible mix of factors, and you also have big generational changes. And so, you know, on the Palestinian front, you have, you know, a younger generation who is now very, very frustrated with their daily lives, with the restrictions they live under occupation in the West Bank and East Jerusalem uh, with the lack of any sort of political rights. Um, You know, they don't have a state. They're not citizens. The Palestinian Authority, which governs some of them, uh, is pretty absent and ineffective. There's very, you know, poor employment and opportunities, lots of poverty. Uh, Whereas people also see, you know, on social media or just, you know, on the streets next to them or the settlements besides them, they see Israelis living what seems to be comparatively much better lives and having, you know, far more rights and the ability to, you know, move about this land. On the Israeli side, you have these longstanding divides and polarization that's been growing, uh, you know, much over the last more than decade in which uh, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has been primarily in power. Overall, Israel has just shifted to the right. Um, But what we've had is also the emboldenment of a sort of religious nationalist right. How is that translating into the violence that we're seeing right now? Can you give us a sense of of what's been happening? So you have several different fronts. So we'll say in the West Bank, you have... uh, growing violence of settlers against Palestinians. So Israeli settlements um, in, you know, Area C of the West Bank, which is the majority of that territory, uh, have been growing, you know, in recent decades, uh, especially in recent years. And, uh, you know, you now have about half a million uh, Israelis living there amongst about three million Palestinians. You know, this is occupied territory, so these settlements are legal under international law. Some of them are legal under Israeli law, but some of them are also illegal under Israeli law. And so there's, you know, groups of people there who are really, they don't respond to the police, they don't respond to the Israeli military, they take matters into their own hands. They'll, uh, you know, attack Palestinian towns, they'll 
you know, intimidate Palestinian farmers, prevent people from accessing their land, make it difficult for people to uh, to move around, you know, throwing stones, um, or even worse, so that, you know, people driving around don't feel comfortable. You can tell, you know, who's a Palestinian driver because they'll have green plates, whereas an Israeli car has yellow plates. So these distinctions on the roads also become quite evident. You reported from the West Bank about this attack by Israeli settlers through Palestinian towns. Describe that scene to me, and what was their justification? So on on Sunday night, you had hundreds of uh, settlers from you know nearby uh, Israeli settlements come to this uh, town of Hawara and uh, a few other towns in this area. Nearby, you have the major city of Nablus, and you also have a lot of settlements that have been growing in those areas, and then many of them that um, you know are known to be much more violent and much more extreme. So this is already a combustible zone. Hawara, you know, often has Israeli military jeeps, you know, um, stationed on the main road through it, the main thoroughfare, because that's sort of, you know, what connects Palestinians from Nablus and, and Janine, another northern city, and let's say Ramallah, which is sort of the main sort of economic political hub. And Israeli settlers use the same road to be able to access their various settlements. So this is a combustible area which has had growing, you know, violence. And already there's been growing cases of Israeli settlers targeting um, Palestinians there in shops, etc. That attack today, you can see behind me here actually, is Israeli military diverting traffic. So you had one of the sort of main roundabouts in this area on, on Sunday. You had a, um, a Palestinian who, who shot and killed two uh, Israeli brothers in a car. A manhunt was then launched uh, for the alleged assailant. Uh, roads were blocked. I, at the time, was actually just trying to get to Nablus to do some more reporting and when was unable to because the main road was blocked. You know, this is around 4 p.m. And, you know, at this one major roundabout here that was nearby where the shooting took place, you know, you already had media gathered, but also already the word was going out that Israeli settlers from, from Yitzhar, which is a very, very extreme and notoriously violent settlement nearby, um, as well as some others, were saying that they were going to gather at around 6 p.m. and march towards Hawara. So you can kind of already guess what's going to happen to some extent in this kind of situation. <laughs> And what ultimately happened was that these people came and torched a lot of houses. About 35 Palestinian houses uh, were burned, cars. And this went on for several hours. You know, the um, Palestinians said that they, you know, were unable to get help, that they said that, you know, the Israeli soldiers stationed around there just stood by and didn't um, stop I talked to one woman who said she had participated in the violence, a woman from Yitzhar. She said, oh, she was annoyed that sometimes that the, she said the Israeli soldiers did stop them sometimes and they didn't let them go far enough. So, you know, a both sides also sort of has very different takes on that same experience there. By the end of the night, you know, um, Israeli settlers had killed one Palestinian man. Around 300 people were, were wounded ultimately. And you just had these horrifying scenes. There have been very few arrests that have happened so far. Even the Israeli military, you know, said we didn't do enough. And so this has really become a kind of inflection point. And it really did, you know, disturb a lot of people on who, you know, have been witnessing a lot of violence up until now.
At the same time that this horrific violence was happening, Miriam, leaders were meeting in Jordan, top Israeli and Palestinian officials, as well as U.S. officials. What influence are these leaders able to exert on the people? So I think, um, you know, part of what you have happening in Israel is that all this violence, uh, you know, unfolding in the occupied territories is coming at the same time that there's like really big political upheaval inside Israel. And so that's really limiting the ability of authorities who either want to stop the violence or under international pressure say that they should stop the violence to do so. And, you know, on the Palestinian side, you also have, uh, you know, a Palestinian authority that is extremely uh, weak at this point in terms of its, you know, control on the ground. And it's also sort of, you know, caught in this infighting about uh, who's going to succeed the current uh, Palestinian president who is extremely old and hasn't been elected for years. And there's, uh, you know, a whole succession crisis that's looming there. And then internationally, you know, frankly, at this point, there's a lot of condemnation that various, uh, you know, Washington and Brussels were issue that doesn't really translate very often on the ground to very much. It's very limited and targeted right now. You know, there is no peace process that's happening. There is no, no trust in agreements from any side. You've brought up something so important and so incredibly depressing that there doesn't seem to be a simple way forward. You know, we're so used to hearing about the peace process, the efforts, the international efforts, as well as uh, leadership efforts um, in Israel and among the Palestinians. What you're saying is this is an incredibly low moment. Yes, it's an incredibly low moment that's been building for years, but that uh, policymakers have been very slow to react to or residents to react to. None of this is really a surprise to anyone who's been living here or experiencing these dynamics. You know, they've been pretty clear and brewing uh, for years, if not months now. But, you know, the policies on the ground remain the same. After the break, we speak with Miriam about an increasingly right-wing Israeli government and how it's playing a role in fueling the violent escalation. We'll be right back. So, Miriam, we've been talking about this escalation in violence in recent weeks, and it's coming at a time when Israel's new government has just formed, and it's the most right-wing in history. How is that affecting the powder keg of the West Bank? So, at the end of December, uh, we uh, had a new Israeli government. Back in power now is Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. He is Israel's longest-serving prime minister. He has a sort of cult of personality around him. He has this nickname as King Bibi. And he has, in part, been what's you know a big part of the shift towards the right uh, and the extreme right and religious right in Israel. How so? In order to um, maintain in power, uh, you know, Netanyahu has made various alliances over the past few years. Benjamin Netanyahu, Israel's longest-serving prime minister, faces the greatest challenge yet to his political survival. He was indicted this week on corruption charges after a long investigation. He was out of power for a bit, but he got back in power, in part by aligning with 
these groups of, you know, uh, religious fundamentalists, um, you know, some of them are Jewish supremacists, you know, far-right settler activists who for years were on the very, very, very far fringe of Israeli politics, but over time have, he's brought them closer and closer in. And now they are part of his coalition. So Benjamin Netanyahu is under this corruption scandal, but he manages to get reelected by pulling in and aligning himself with these extreme right-wing fringe parties. How extremist are some of the people that he's now aligned himself with? Several of the key players uh, now in the Israeli government are extremely extreme. It's Mar Ben-Gvir, for example. He uh, came up um, as a lawyer representing the settler community. Uh, He has been found guilty of being part of an extremist anti-Arab group, which you know, at one point banned him from parliament. Uh, he's been brought in. You know, someone who's, uh, you know, was known for his incendiary extremist views to now being the minister of national security. You know, other of these actors are, you know, as in addition to being very, uh, having, you know, incendiary, violent uh, rhetoric about Palestinians. Also, some of them are quite homophobic. Some of them you know, are very religious fundamentalists uh, in terms of, you know, wanting to even restrict Israel's definition of who counts as a Jew. Others of them also, you know, would support uh, more restrictions on women's rights. There's a whole host of ways in which they also really see a much more religious fundamentalist state, a Jewish religious fundamentalist state that they want. And under Netanyahu, they are as empowered as they've ever been. And these people are not holding back right now. And they also know that Netanyahu needs them because he needs to keep his coalition together to push through this judicial reform and in order for him to basically fight or get rid of his corruption charges Mm. that have been dogging him for years. You mentioned judicial reform. This is a very controversial move in Israel. What does Netanyahu want to do? So Netanyahu, uh, along with some of his key allies, have put forth proposals that have been circulating, again, for several years now, to basically overhaul Israel's judicial system. The Supreme Court, uh, by Jewish Israelis, is now seen as sort of effectively one of the last basins of democracy in the country. So basically, uh, Netanyahu's overhaul would take power away from the Supreme Court and judges and put that power in the hands of the ruling coalition, which means the government. Uh, So basically, you know, in Israel's style of parliament, you have the party that gets the most votes, forms the coalition that is parliament, that is also the head of it, is then the prime minister. So you would basically kind of effectively have one party rule over the judicial system in this dynamic. So what has the public reaction been to that? And how representative is this government of the people? So the the public reaction has been incredibly divided and polarizing. Again, like much of what I've said, drawing on longstanding developments here. So, you know, for the supporters of this judicial reform, they see it as a much-needed corrective to a judicial system that they've seen as overly, they say is overly activist, that uh, is overly represented by sort of Ashkenazi elites, uh, that isn't therefore diverse enough amongst, uh, you know, other groups of of, uh, Israelis. And they see it as, you know, ending the sort of clique of judges who have, uh, you know, been able to rule the country and protect their own. For other Israelis, they see it as really this like end of democracy in the country if there's no... uh, 
independent judicial system. And this has really freaked out investors. This has freaked out the tech sector, which is a huge part of Israel's economy and also as, as part of its sort of social capital. It has really um, united uh, what has often been a very sort of divided opposition to Netanyahu. I'm protesting. I'm protesting for my children. I'm protesting for this country. I'm um, and so you have huge parts of, of Israeli society who often don't get along right now who are, you know, joining protests together. Upon in Israel, I fought for 30 years in this country to save this country. Now I'm fighting against the dictatorship. It's going to happen. That said, these protests, you know, still that have been ongoing for weeks now that have brought tens of thousands of people, um, you know, still are largely represented by a certain, you know, certain groups and classes of of Israelis. Uh, So, again, you have political divides, you have religious divides, you have class divides that have all been uh, growing and that have been, uh, you know, these polarizations uh, right now have really pivoted, uh, you know, sort of the pro-Netanyahu group, which has been backing him despite his corruption charges, despite, um, you know, him fighting for power and aligning with extreme parties. And then you have this somewhat fractured uh, sort of opposition that has been uniting against Netanyahu and is now uniting against these judicial reforms. I want to bring us full circle, Miriam, to where this conversation started, which is the devastating violence happening on the West Bank. The movement to the right wing by Israeli's government, the attempt to curb the power of the courts, what does all this mean for the violence that we're seeing between Israelis and Palestinians? It effectively means that the likelihood of this violence continuing and spiraling and getting worse is very high. In order to push through the judicial reforms uh, and to fight his corruption charges, Netanyahu needs the extreme right and these, you know, very extremist politicians that he's brought in. Therefore, there is pressure to, you know, appease those parts of his coalition. And what those people want is, you know, increasingly harsh restrictions uh, on Palestinians and increasing dominance of Israel and Jewish Israelis in the West Bank. You know, some of them want to annex the entire area as they've done uh, for East Jerusalem. Now, annexing doesn't mean that you bring in the Palestinian population, you make them citizens with equal rights. That's not what this looks like. So, you know, right now you basically have an emboldened group that's historically been on the fringe, is now emboldened as the Israeli government, right as on the ground, those communities that vote for those politicians um, and that, you know, help to to bring them to power as well, are, you know, increasingly also emboldened uh, and and, and violent. And so that you therefore have spiraling violence from, uh, you know, Israeli settlers against Palestinians at the same time that you have this growing insecurity uh, amongst Palestinians and also this cycle of revenge attacks happening. You know, maybe it'll die down for a while because, you know, some, you know, slight concession will be made, but it's going to keep spreading unless there's, you know, actual political policy changes on the ground made. Miriam, thank you for talking with us. Thank you for having me. Miriam Berger is a foreign affairs reporter for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was produced by Alana Gordon. It was mixed by Sean Carter and edited by Rena Flores. Thanks to Jesse Messner-Haig and Joe Snell. If you want to show your support for the show and the kind of in-depth international reporting we do, please subscribe to The Washington Post. 
it's a great way to support what you hear on the podcast every day. To find out more, go to WashingtonPost.com slash subscribe. And thanks again. I'm Libby Casey. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. 